Please pray with me, and then we will continue our journey in Acts. Our gracious Father, the triune God of heaven and earth, all things have been made by you and are for you. Our own existence is for your glory. And we thank you that in spite of our sin to not worship you as you deserve, you have seen fit to give us a means to be restored to you through the God-man, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for your grace to us to help us to see and respond in saving faith to Jesus. We pray this morning that as we dig into your word again in a specific episode in the life of the Apostle Paul, that you will use the truth of your word by your spirit to change us, transform us so that we respond to Jesus, and continue to change us so that we can be humble and selfless like our Savior. In his name we pray, amen. So we have been, in recent days, we've been in Acts 19. We looked at Paul's, uh, there in this section, I'm going to zoom in here. In this section of Asia Minor, there's Ephesus. So on Paul's third missionary journey, he has spent the better part of three years in ministry in Ephesus. And then after Acts 19, we saw Paul journeying from here back across the Aegean Sea to the region of Macedonia, where he would have been in places like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. Then he journeyed down to Greece, that's that section labeled on this map as Achaia, and he wintered in Corinth, and there we believe he wrote his letter to the Romans. Um, And he was going to try to sail from Corinth back to Syria, Palestine, because he wants to return to Jerusalem with with gifts for the poor uh, Jews who are in Jerusalem, and he has a bunch of teammates with him, but there's a plot from the Jews to, uh, to do something to Paul, probably put him to death, and so he decides not to sail from Syria. Instead, he returns from Corinth back around the Aegean to the area of Ephesus, but he goes directly to Miletus and chooses to bypass Ephesus, and that's where we find Paul now, where he has made this decision not to stop because he missed, Pen- he, mi- he missed Passover in Jerusalem, but now he wants to try to make it by Pentecost, which is 50 days after Passover. And Paul has, in all of these journeys toward the end of his third missionary journey, he has set his eyes on returning Jerusalem, but with as Paul always does, but we emphasized this last week with an understanding and an intentionality that in every place, people are the ministry. So I'm going to ask you that at my latest today, you try to stand in Paul's sandals and imagine all that you have invested in service to Christ with the people and the young but growing church in Ephesus. And imagine that as far as you know, this is the last time you will be able to speak with the leaders in person to help them to be the kind of servant shepherds that the Lord Jesus would have them to be among the believers in Ephesus. What do you say? 
How do you say it? How would you guide them? What would you emphasize? And so our our sermon today is called Paul's Pattern and Plea for Selfless Shepherding. This is really just going to be part one of these two because it runs all the way from verses 17 to 38. So we're going to go halfway and, and we're really going to emphasize Paul's pattern because Acts 20 verses 17 to 38 contains Paul's impassioned plea for the Ephesian elders to model their ministry after his own example. Read with me Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to 27 for our careful study this morning. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and he called the elders of the church to come to him. So there's this quick round trip. He's gonna have to send one of his teammates, go up to Ephesus, get the elders, journey another 30 or 40 miles back down here to us and do all of this very quickly, quick turnaround so he can sail now. Uh, toward Palestine. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord among you, or serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. This speech from Paul is unique in the book of Acts because it's the only one directly geared toward believers, giving it a more similar flavor to his letters. All the other examples of Paul's preaching and conversations are are primarily, especially speeches, they're geared towards uh, presenting Christ to unbelievers. So this one is, is unique. And he's addressing himself to the elders in the church. Verse 15, the Greek says, presbyteroi, they're elders who are also called overseers in verse 28, episkopoi, who are responsible to shepherd, to care for the flock of God among them which means they're functioning in the role of a pastor in our common terminology. This is one of the several places that it seems evident in the New Testament that elders, overseers, pastors, refers to the same office, the same role. And Paul has already made an effort to establish a plurality of elders at Ephesus who work together as a team to shepherd the church there as they serve as under shepherds to the great shepherd, even Jesus, who is the head of the church. 
The primary role of elders is to help a church family put into practice what God's word says Christians ought to be and to do. Now, throughout this whole speech, but especially in the first half, Paul makes himself the example of what kind of shepherds they ought to be. So you know that every time we look at God's word, we take whatever we're observing and we apply it to ourselves. If we would follow Paul's example of selfless shepherding as he follows Christ, just to be sure, let me state the obvious here that although you may not currently serve in the capacity of a church shepherd, state the obvious, the attitudes and the postures and the practices can apply to all of Christ's people. Of course they can. You know that. So listen attentively, even if you're not currently an elder in the local church. None of us has the role of Jesus as the head of the church, but we're always trying to be like him. Just so all of us should be following Paul's example here of selfless service to others, following the example of Christ. So if we would follow Paul's example of selfless shepherding as he follows Christ, we must, here's the first of four things we see in these verses, we must live transparently in service to the Lord, serving others in humility, sincerity, and perseverance. Live transparently before those around you as you serve the Lord. Paul says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day. That's a courageous thing to say. <laughs> you yourselves know that I lived transparently among you. Paul says again in verse 34, you yourselves know that I worked with my hands to minister to my needs and those with me so that we weren't, weren't a burden to you. There's another good example of Paul using such language in his, his first letter to the Thessalonians in chapter two of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians where he repeats this refrain and the idea, you yourselves know, for you remember, brothers, how we lived among you, how we loved you, how we set an example for you, you know. Paul lived transparently in order that he might be a model of submission to Christ and dependence on Christ. Even if you're younger than some of the people that you serve, remember Paul telling Timothy from Roman imprisonment? In the pastoral epistle to Timothy, the first one in verse four, verse in chapter four, verse fifteen, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. So that all may see your progress. We serve the Lord by serving others, and we must learn to do so more and more in a way that is consistent with Paul's description of his own serving the Lord among them in Ephesus. And what were those things that Paul references in the way that he lives transparently before them? As he serves other people, Paul does so, he can say, he can say this, again, pretty courageous, with all humility. How does he manage to talk like this without bragging? Paul seems never concerned for his own popularity but eminently concerned to see people exalt Christ. Remember the words of John the Baptist? He must increase, I must decrease. Behold the Lamb of God. <laughs> Don't complain about some of my disciples following him. That's the idea. 
Paul is not gathering followers, a following for himself, but for Jesus. Humility, then, is to make yourself low in status or in rank. That's humility. Make yourself low in status or in rank. What's funny is that we come to know that as we come to know God as he really is, when we begin to see God as he really is, humility is just a true reflection of the reality of our place. Do you see what I'm saying? You see God as he is, it puts you in your place. You are naturally humbled. If you are arrogant, it's because you're not putting God in his place. We deserve no status or rank. Only God does. So Christ's example of humility was truly unique because he deserves to be exalted, because he's God. So Paul can claim humility without bragging because he doesn't elevate himself, and in doing so, he sets an example of Christ-like humility for his fellow believers, with all humility and with tears, he says. What are tears? An expression of emotion, right? Tears are a mark of the sincerity of our hearts. Paul says this in a way to say tears are a mark of the sincerity of his heart. These are tears of sadness when individuals reject Jesus. He proclaims Christ to them, and they think that they are too good to need Jesus, and he cries tears of sadness. The Savior who offered to save them from themselves, tears of sadness. These are also tears of sympathy, tears of compassion for those he's serving among who are suffering, such as the loss of a loved one or, or someone is suffering mistreatment, injustice, hardship, and Paul is, is counseling them from the word of God, but he suffers with them. He carries their burden with them in tears and in prayer. He's sympathetic. And these are tears of joy with those who are accepting and exalting Christ, with those who are growing in Christ, again, exalting him in their lives. They're, they're serving Christ for the good of others to the glory of God, all sorts of tears because he sincerely loves these people whom he serves. With humility, with tears, and with trials, Paul says. The point of, of this description of trials is that he's persevering through the plots of the Jews against him, and not just in Ephesus, but in nearly every single community where he was preaching Christ. <laughs> Paul had to persevere through plots against him and persecution. And so the idea is perseverance. If what is perseverance if not endurance? That it's hard and it takes work. We'll come back to this concept again because it's mentioned further in the verses. So we're seeing that selfless shepherding is to live transparently in service to God, service to the Lord, by serving others in a manner that is humble, sincere, and perseverant. How else do we see that we can follow Paul's model of selfless shepherding, where he's 
taking his cues from Christ. Listen to Paul say so plainly in these verses that we must prioritize direct and persistent gospel proclamation through biblical teaching. Direct and persistent gospel proclamation through biblical teaching. Not only is this theme evident in these verses here, but it's probably the most prominent feature of all of Paul's ministry. Preach the gospel to the lost and teach believers how to apply the gospel to every facet of their lives. Paul did not shrink back, so he he boldly declared anything profitable for their salvation and for their growth, and he did this teaching in public, which he had done in the synagogue while he was among them, and then in the hall of Tyrannus even longer. And now we learn also that, that Paul apparently had gladly gone to follow up with them in a more personal way from house to house. So Paul goes to their homes and he's, he's answering questions. And he's applying God's truth to their life situations. What did we say God's word says about this? How do you apply this part of the gospel to your life? We call this type of teaching counseling. And it's the primary type of teaching from God's word that nearly all of us are engaged in or should be engaged in. Let me say that again. When you apply the word of God to people's lives personally, to your own heart and to the lives of those around you, we call it counseling, and it's the primary type of teaching from God's word that nearly all of us are already engaged in in more ways than we realize. We're, we're either giving people unbiblical advice or we're giving people biblical counsel. So whether in, pro, in public or in private, what was the central emphasis of Paul's teaching and proclamation? In verse 21, we hear, with the Jews and the Greeks, he testified of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, which is a summary of a right response to the gospel. Repentance toward God of our sin and of faith specifically in the Lord Jesus to be our propitiation and to be our restoration to God, our atonement and our righteousness for forgiveness before God. It's a summary of the gospel, to repent before God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone to save you. So now I want you to, to notice two more things. One of them is implied and the other one is explicit. First of all, we ought never to think that the gospel only applies to the lost who need to be saved. Don't think that the gospel is, is just something that gets you saved and then you're done with it. It definitely is what people need to be saved, for you are saved only because of God's grace to you through a response of faith in Jesus. But I just, but just having a, uh, I was just having a conversation, excuse me, on Thursday with another friend in our church family that the most significant and readily applicable answers for the struggles and the need for growth in our lives correspond directly to aspects of the gospel itself. The most readily applicable things from God's word that you need to apply in the situations of your life correspond to facets of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Take, take the issues of our struggles at times with, with our own identity. Think about identity. Does not the gospel point you to an identity that is grounded in a God who created you? 
And then, does not the gospel point you to an identity that if you were a believer, uh, that, that it is a God whose son paid to make you his own, in whom rests your true identity? That is the gospel of God. I belong to God through Jesus. Or another example, what is the single most important and foundational issue to I'm sorry, that's the same example, (laughs) to your identity. I belong to God through Jesus Christ, my Savior and Lord. Or here's another one. Or let's say you're struggling with selfishness. What is the most pertinent thing to changing your heart if you struggle with selfishness? Is it not the selfless love of God to give Jesus? And Christ's own humility and selfless obedience to go to the cross? I could literally go on and on. Facets of the gospel that God's word teaches us that apply to the specific situations in our lives. Such as how we counsel ourselves and others, and that's as it should be. So a second thing, a second point, we do so only according to what God himself has said. And we do it most effectively when we are most closely aligned with the specificity of God's own revealed word in Holy Scripture. And the fingerprint of God's gospel is throughout Scripture, as Paul says in verse 27, that he didn't shrink, there's that God-given boldness again, from declaring to them the whole counsel of God. So in this context, is this not plainly a way of saying that throughout Scripture, the threads of the gospel are woven together into the tapestry of God's salvation? of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. We apply the truths of the gospel from God's word to the situations of our lives, and God the Holy Spirit takes his word and straightens our twisted hearts. God the Holy Spirit takes his word and he straightens our twisted hearts. So what we're saying is that this biblical teaching and gospel proclamation are inextricably intertwined and that we must follow Paul's example to make it our highest priority. It's what God is using to save people, and it's what he's using to keep shaping us into the image of Christ. So let's come to our third emphasis of Paul's living example before the Ephesian elders. Paul models being sensitive and obedient to the Lord's leading and keeping an eternal perspective on safety and ministry. We've seen this numerous times in Acts with the the Pauline missionary endeavor. Paul submits his plans and his desires to the leading of the Spirit. They they prayerfully, his team, Paul with his teammates, they, they prayerfully seek God's guidance and direction. And sometimes the Spirit guides or confirms their plans. Other times, he changes their plans. So in verses 22 and 23, it shows us here that Paul is sensitive to the Spirit's leading, and he's unselfishly obedient to that God-given direction. He says he's constrained. He's, he's tied. He's bound. He's compelled. Not yet literally. If you read a little further in Acts, you're going to discover that Paul will literally be bound. Right now, he's He's, he's, he's bound, not literally, but he's bound to obeying God even above his own safety. Paul doesn't know the details. He says, not knowing what will happen to me there, but he's already received plenty of confirmation by the Spirit 
that what's in store ahead is imprisonment and afflictions. It seems likely that since Paul says this confirmation is happening in every city, you hear him say, in every city, it's likely that at every stop there are fellow believers warning him. Paul in Jerusalem, you're going to face imprisonment and affliction. The warnings appear to be less explicit and detailed, though, until Paul reaches Caesarea Maritima, where he meets a prophet named Agabus, and Agabus will give him the specifics about his arrest when he finally reaches Jerusalem. But why doesn't this threat of impending suffering and even mortal danger stop Paul from going to Jerusalem? I mean, what would your reaction be? Everybody keeps warning me that I'm in mortal danger. And there were times in Paul's ministry that he avoided danger. You know what I mean? He wasn't looking around for persecution. Paul escaped through walls and Paul, other such things. But when he's constrained by the Spirit to go, why doesn't the impending suffering and mortal danger stop him? Well, the first reason is that, he's, is that he submits to obeying the Spirit's leading. And the second reason is that God is enabling him to keep his safety and his very life in perspective with the eternal purposes and trustworthiness of a good and a sovereign God. God is enabling him to keep his life and his safety in perspective with the eternal purposes of God. How come you can release your children to go be missionaries in some other country? Well, first of all, besides the logic of you're not any more safe here than you are over there, besides that, you're releasing them into the will of God. We're always precisely as safe as God desires for us to be. So Paul can say with all sincerity that he does not account his life of any value, nor is precious to himself, because his life belongs to God, to the Savior who purchased him. Paul knows that he's always exactly as safe as God wants him to be, so he can focus on following God's will. Don't we long to be like this? If we don't, we're not seeing our lives accurately. Christ purchased us to set us apart to him and to be his sent ones. And we trust in a God who's always sovereign and good. So you don't have to despair about the difficulties that he allows in your life, but only to cling more fervently and dependently on the God who has loved you so dearly. You do not need to doubt God's love and care for you. You need to cling to him more ferociously. My life is not my own. I have been bought by a perfectly benevolent master. I am his child. Jesus now calls me friend. So Paul will tell the Philippians in a letter when he's imprisoned under house arrest, awaiting trial, probably in Rome, he will tell them that my one purpose in living is Christ. If, I, if, if, if Christ lets me die, then I go to be with him. That's the best option I have. But if I live, I stay here to serve my Savior by serving you and others, Philippians. So that's good too, if that's what God wants. We need that kind of trust and eternal perspective about our lives and safety and ministry so that we'll gladly and humbly follow the Lord's leading into whatever situations he's calling us 
I want to challenge you that the more you obey Christ and stretch yourself into the places where Christ is calling you, I want you to know right now, no if, ands, or buts about it, that you will be more and more desperately clinging to Jesus. I promise you. You will not be like, oh, it's just getting so much easier. It is not. I have come to a place in my life where I realize that if this is what God has for me, my stress is not going to decrease. But I will cling more ferociously to my Jesus. And if you don't see me clinging to Jesus, then give me a kick in the pants so that I will cling to Jesus. That's what we're doing together. Now, Paul will keep delving a bit further into this perspective about our lives and safety and ministry so that we'll gladly and humbly follow the Lord's leading. Paul's digging deeper, and now, so if, if we would follow Paul's example, we too must finish the race with a clear conscience. A clear conscience about what? That we withheld nothing of truth and love and that we withheld nothing of selfless effort. You want to get to the end and be able to say like Paul does, my conscience is clear, I'm convinced that I am innocent of your blood. Paul talks about finishing his life in the ministry God has given him, like finishing a trial-laden endurance race. Don't you just love running? And you know, you get to that section where there's another uphill section, and then the traffic stops, and you're like, uh, I don't think I can restart if I stop. Do you know what I'm talking about? And you're winded, and you're hurting, and you're like, I, I, I have a side ache again. I cannot finish this race. But in the spiritual life, you can just keep clinging to the Savior who's already gone before you. He's already at the finish line, and he is dragging you along if you will cling to him. And so this endurance race you can keep going so much further than you think you can going is what they always tell you about physical endurance. How much more if the strength is not you but Christ? But don't, again, don't pretend we're not talking about a long slog, difficult endurance race to be the kind of mom to your children that God has called you to be, selfless every morning, every noon, and every night. Am I right? Is it getting easier? Not until they stop sinning. Not until you stop sinning. Paul doesn't gloss over the hard bits of suffering with Christ and service to him, of ministry being complicated. Hear me saying relationships with people because people are the ministry, remember? <laughs> of the heartache over those who reject Christ or even the exhausted frustration of the ongoing battle against our own flesh in our lives as we try to walk in the spirit in the new life God has given us. Paul does not gloss over the hard bits. Read everything by Paul and you will not hear a single thing that sounds like, um, just hold on, let me back up. I challenge you to read everything written by Paul and you will not hear a single thing that sounds like Paul saying that God saved you so that you will now be comfortable in this life. 
Heaven is the time and the place where you will enter into the joy of your master forever. Where there will be eternal feasting and worshiping of the goodness of the grace of God. On this earth, God gives us moments of rest and comfort and strength, but we're fighting to worship God as we should. Because Christ has made us his own, and we're desperately depending on God to grow us and use us, to make us more set apart to him, and to be his sent ones. So don't buy any nonsense that if you'll believe in Jesus and then just have enough faith in him, that God wants to make everything just right for you in this life. It's nonsense. God has already offered you himself through Jesus Christ. It is God himself who is more than enough. You don't need everything just right. You need to be right with God. But God's patience right now with sinners means that he's still saving people for his possession, and you and I get to be a part of that. God is still making people for his possession, and we get to be a part of that. That's what his patience means. We're not there yet, but we already know he's saved us. We are going to get there. So the little bits of rest you get here, when you have Sabbath rest here, you're like, man, heaven's going to be just amazing. I can't wait to get to that rest. But we're not there yet. Just so, do you hear again Paul's focused priority? The ministry that the Lord Jesus gave him is to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So what's your ministry? What's your life purpose until God takes you home? Is it not to testify to the gospel of the grace of God? So Paul tells the Ephesian leaders, I don't think I'll see you face to face again, among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom. Another reference to the gospel. That's his honest expectation, that he won't get to teach them again in person, whom he loves dearly in the Lord. But his prayer for them is that he'll get to the end, or I'm sorry, his prayer for himself is that he'll get to the end of his race with a clear conscience that he'll hear his Lord say, well done, my son. Along those lines, he can say truthfully to them that his conscience is clear regarding them. That's what he means by being innocent of their blood, that if they suffer judgment, it wasn't because he didn't warn them with the gospel. If they, in fact, as we said, he came about it from every angle in God's word, the whole counsel of God to allow the Holy Spirit to do his work, to give them every chance to respond appropriately to Jesus. Don't you want to get to the end of your life, like Paul at the end of his, and be able to say truthfully, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Jesus, help me keep the faith. What will you do today? with Paul's example of selfless leadership. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for saving us. We thank you that Jesus Christ is the only mediator between you and humanity. And we know that your word teaches us that we personally must respond to receive Christ as our Lord and Savior. So we pray for each ear listening to the truth of your gospel this morning, that they will repent 
and believe in Christ alone for salvation. And Lord, we pray for your people that you will give us unique wisdom and strength according to your word. Help us to depend on you and cling to you ferociously so that you will help us persevere to the end. And may you receive all the glory for it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.